If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. It can be pretty difficult to feel optimistic about humans these days. There is just this sense of dread, of doom, that pervades the Western view of the world. Climate change, new technologies, wars, it can make it all feel certain that what awaits us will only be worse than what has come before. On these last two days of our journey through space and life and animals, and this week, the human experiment, on these last two days, I wanted to look to the future and do it in two starkly different ways. Today, we're going to take the pessimist view. We're going to head to Canada to a place where a man named Bruce Beach thought a lot about the future and how humanity might survive it no matter what it took. Tomorrow, we look on the sunnier side of things. If the world ended tomorrow, what would you need to survive? Food, water. After time, you'd need maybe some plumbing or electricity. But what about after that? After all the life and death stuff had been taken care of? What about a library? To pass knowledge on from the past? Or some kind of language, maybe a universal language, to communicate between all the survivors? How about a dentist? For one man in Canada, answering these questions was his life's work. He built a bunker in Ontario, a sprawling 10,000-square-foot complex, and in it he tried to prepare everything that would be needed for the end of the world. And to start a new society out of the wreckage. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we're headed to Arc 2 in Hornings Mills, Ontario, Canada, to wait out the end of the world. That's after this.
Imagine you're standing inside a school bus. There's a curved metal roof above you and a familiar long rectangular aisle down the middle. There are seats on either side. Now, imagine that you're standing in that school bus, but buried underground. Instead of seats on either side, there are bunk beds. The roof is low and rusty, and the windows are all blocked off because the giant hole this bus is buried in is filled entirely with concrete. So it's dark down here. It's a little bit eerie. This underground bus is connected to a bunch of other underground buses. And this is not an exercise of imagination. This is a real place with a very specific purpose. Functionally, it's a fallout shelter to survive the end of the world by nuclear disaster. This is Josh Elliott. He's a Canadian journalist. But essentially, it's 42 school buses buried under a hill in rural Ontario and filled in with cement. It's kind of rusty. It's very rusty and dank. But still, for what it is, it's pretty incredible. Beyond the bunk rooms, there's a kitchen with stoves. There are diesel generators, a space for a pharmacy. There's even that library we talked about, each contained in their very own school bus. In a tiny school that he put together, in a hospital, a dentist's office, a chair. I don't know if he had a dentist enlisted to be part of his group. Not everything is in place. A lot of things, I think, were not working. Um, But he had the rough outline of a lot of these things that he thought he would need uh, to restart the world after a nuclear war. From above ground, there's not that much to see here. The complex is mostly hidden underneath a grassy green field. But one thing that is visible is a heavy set of steel doors. It's the entrance. Over the top of those doors is a sign with the shelter's name. He called it the Ark 2. He kind of saw himself as a Noah, and he kind of looked like Noah. He had a big, wispy beard. Um, He'd wear a hat, overalls, and um, he was a big man and and very uh, chatty from what I understand, too. This particular Noah's name was Bruce Beach. Welcome to Ark 2. I am a radiological scientific officer, and this is our survival complex. One of the first questions I was asked by everyone is, how do you get fallout out of the air in the case of a nuclear war? And that is what this survival complex is built for. That is one of the very That's Bruce from one of the many videos he posted online about ARC-2. His life took a winding path from his childhood all the way to the ARC. He was born in 1934 in Kansas, and he joined the Air Force as a young man. And when he got out, he started a company that built and sold bomb shelters. In the early 1960s, Bruce got married and divorced. And around this same time, he converted to Baha'i Faith, a religion founded in the 1850s and which holds that all people in the world are equal, regardless of race, sex, or nationality. Then Bruce met the Canadian woman who would become his second wife. Bruce went back to school to study computer programming and economics. And in the early 1970s, he developed a portable 17-pound computer, a kind of proto-laptop, which he called the Light Writer. It never made it into production. He and his family eventually relocated to his wife's hometown of Hornings Mills, Ontario, about 70 miles northwest of Toronto. In the 80s, Bruce launched this ambitious undersea exploration project called Canada's Tomorrow Discovery Corporation. And 
It was no joke. The Canadian government even granted the project $50 million. He bought a decommissioned ferry and turned it into a research vessel. And his idea was that he was going to go and find sunken treasure, including the Titanic, which hadn't been found at the time. And he enlisted all of these people that were, you know, 18 to 20 college age. It was almost like a, his own personal Star Trek boot camp. Uh, everybody had really futuristic uniforms and everything. He put this all into what he was doing. And someone else found the Titanic while he was doing this. So it never got off the ground. It kind of fell apart. In the end, the light rider and the undersea exploration project were all just a backdrop to what would become Bruce's longest lasting project. Because in 1979, on the grounds of his home in Hornings Mills, Bruce began to dig. It started with just four buses. Bruce later told a newspaper that the buses had been a gift from a friend who had worked as an auto wrecker. And Bruce took these four buses and he buried them on the Hornings Mills property and then poured concrete all around them. Clearly, he saw some kind of potential here because he went on to collect over 30 more buses, buying them used for just $300 a piece. He added these buses to his growing underground complex. Eventually, there were 42 in all. In the Ark II, as Bruce called it, he tried to anticipate anything a future society would need. There were the generators and air filtration systems, but also radio equipment, a telephone landline, a computer room. There was an exercise bike rigged up to a wheel meant to grind wheat. There were even sets of chessboards to teach bored post-apocalyptic children. And along with this bunker, Bruce also started developing his universal language. He really did see it as not just his ticket to escape the, the doomsday, but as many people as possible, he wanted to rebuild afterwards. So you could call him a doomsayer, but he always went by this term that he would use for himself, the dawnsayer, where he was looking to the next future and the start of something as opposed to the end of it. For Bruce, the arc wasn't just about facing the doom and the end. It was about creating something new, the possibility of a dawn in the next day. But while Bruce was looking optimistically into the future, local authorities were looking very skeptically at the bunker that was growing larger and larger in his backyard. In 1986, the county fire marshal tried to shut him down, concerned over the fact that the Ark had only one entrance and exit, along with other potential hazards. Josh says they told Bruce, if something happens here, we're not sending firefighters out to help. It's too dangerous. And over the next 20 years or so, Bruce was embroiled in a near constant tug of war with local authorities over Arc 2. Over the years, there'd be several times where they would go and try to shut him down and weld the door shut. And as the mayor put it to me, you know, they would be pulling out of the driveway and leaving. And just as they're doing that, Bruce would be out there like taking off the weld and just opening it up again. He didn't care. Fire marshals weren't the only folks interested in the project. Soon, a kind of loose community sprung up around Arc 2. People who would come out to volunteer or attend Bruce's frequent prepper meetings or demonstrations. He also maintained a website with all of these instructional videos about how aspects of the Arc 2 project worked. One of the most important things in the survival complex is a good source of water. Our water comes from a well, but we keep a storage of 5,000 gallons of it 
and a big water tanker. It's actually the media was curious too. Every time something earth-shattering or incomprehensible happened in the news, Y2K, 9-11, the COVID pandemic, a journalist would make the trek out to Hornings Mills to write about the kooky guy waiting for the end of the world. But Bruce made sure he got something out of these visits too. He worked in sort of a barter system. So whether you're a journalist or you're just one of his friends, you wanted to stay over there for a night or a year, um, you would always have to put in the work. So if you want to go in and shoot in the in the Ark too, you would have to chop wood or help him with some of the other chores around. And there were always chores from what I understand, like his his different machinery in there was always breaking down. So he'd need people to help with that. Over the years, Bruce became something of a cross between a folk hero and a local eccentric. And about five years ago, the town of Hornings Mills decided that actually they were mostly cool with whatever was going on over at Arc 2. Around 2015, once a lot of TV cameras had been in there and Bruce kind of won some public support, um, the mayor showed up and he said, basically, we will send the fire department if something bad happens here. So yeah, he kind of reached a, a balance with them eventually. Bruce died in 2021 at the age of 87. But the Ark 2 lives on, buried underneath the soil in Hornings Mills. But for now, without a Noah. Despite all of his planning for the end of the world, Bruce didn't seem to have much of a plan for what would happen if his bunker outlived him. Earlier this year, Bruce's daughter told the paper The Sun that the family had considered selling the facility but had decided against it. Its future at the moment seems uncertain. On some level, it's easy to look at the Ark with all of its rusting school buses, aging equipment, empty shelves, and dismiss it all as one man's unhealthy obsession with doomsday. You do try to think through, like, okay, how does someone get to this point? What do they get out of this? Um, And I do respect that, that it was fulfilling for people in different ways to be connected to him and to be around such an interesting figure, whether or not you believe everything that he believes. It's also not that hard to imagine why so many people saw the Ark's promise. We all want somewhere to go when it all goes wrong. One of his followers that I spoke to put it really well, where he said, there's this feeling that something is off, like we're living in a time of history when things are uh, more accelerated. They seem to be happening in bigger and scarier ways all the time. You know, we just had a pandemic, which is obviously going to add to that kind of thinking. Like the flood is rising, you look for an arc, you look for a lifeline, right? Um, And so someone who seems like they've got a plan and they've got things figured out can be attractive when you feel scared. And I think that that was one of the big um, draws for him. And to be part of that project drew in a lot of people. I want to give a special thanks to Josh Elliott for telling us the incredible story of Bruce Beach and the Ark 2. This episode was produced by Amanda McGowan. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes... Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire Seuss, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris. 
wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure they are always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com. Hi, I'm Lale Arakogli, host of Women Who Travel. Women Who Travel is a transported podcast for anyone curious about the world. We talk to adventurers and athletes. I've raced the God's Own Adventure Race, which is on the South Island and goes through the mountains down in the Southern Alps on New Zealand. That was eight days spent out in the wilderness. And chefs. Iranian food is home, it's family, it's love. And we share dispatches from our listeners. Ireland is full of these, I will call them ghosts of the past. From stampeding elephants to training sled dogs. We hear it all. The dogs will curl right up with you and it can be kind of cozy waiting things out. New episodes of Women Who Travel publish every Thursday. Join us wherever you listen.